Dan Clayton's back with us. Hey, Dan. Hey, guys. How you doing? <laughs> Sorry about the technical difficulties there. Hey, yeah, no worries. Good. You know, the craziest thing is the last time we talked to you was in March as the, the Jazz were uh, kind of getting ready here for what we would call a playoff push in March. Yeah. And, and now we're back playing the Oklahoma – or they got back on Saturday playing the Oklahoma City Thunder in really disappointing fashion. What did you see was the biggest differences between Game 1 versus the Pelicans and Game 2 versus the Thunder? <laughs> I mean, all due respect to New Orleans, opponent quality had a big had a big part to do with it. Oklahoma City is just look they're they're smart. They are, um, you know, every time throughout the course of the season because I do graphics and stuff for Salt City Hoops to kind of track the Western Conference playoff race. Every time Oklahoma City goes on this major tear where they win eight out of ten or something, I always go check to see like, okay, who's playing out of their mind and facilitating that. And what's crazy is. The answer is usually nobody. Like, it's just that they've got a lot of quality guys who are smart at basketball, know how to play their roles. Chris Paul is obviously a wizard. He's 35 years old, but he's still just controlling the game at a really high level. I think, if I remember correctly, I think Oklahoma City outscored the Jazz by 27 points just in Chris Paul's minutes. So, you know, I like... First of all, you have to tip the hat and give Oklahoma City credit where, where that's concerned. But really, I think the other, the other big part of the difference from Utah's end, from, from Utah's perspective, is I just don't think they were playing as smart, particularly in pick-and-roll situations. Um, on Thursday night, the, the opener, the, the, the re-opener, I guess, the first game of the restart for Utah against New Orleans, I thought Donovan Mitchell was fantastic in pick-and-roll. He was coming off screens and just making really good reads, and you know the ball was going the right places. And then Saturday against Oklahoma City, again, a better team, a team that knows how to scheme for a specific opponent. I just felt like they were doing things to sort of speed up Donovan Mitchell's decision-making process, and that was causing him and other people to just do things that were a little out of character and and try to do too much, and, and um, it, was, it was really, like literally, it was one of Utah's five worst offensive performances of the entire season. How much of it was also just the, the second game? Everybody was amped for the first game. Uh, Oklahoma City, that was their first game, uh, and for the Utah Jazz, it was you know, they don't have a lot of time to prepare for the next opponent. There's just some film study. You can't do a lot of walkthroughs. Uh, how much is this the, the, the timing of when things happen for each team? Yeah, I mean, it could be, right? Because, you know, for ever since the NBA released the restart schedule, Oklahoma City has been thinking about, okay, our next game's against Utah, our next game's against Utah, our next game's against Utah, right? So, I mean, that could have something to do with it. Like I say, I, you know, I think the Jazz know the Thunder pretty well. They've they've seen each other. That was the third time this season. They know Chris Paul because Chris Paul has been, you know, someone they've been linked to in the playoffs for several seasons in, in when he was with L.A. and then when he was with Houston. So, like, they know these guys. They know how these guys like to play. Um, I think the advanced scouting department for the Jazz does a pretty good job of, of equipping the players with a, with a sense of, of what different guys want to do. So I, I do think that it – at a certain level, when you're at this level of the game and there's a finite number of teams and players that you're seeing all the time, a lot of it just comes down to you getting yourself mentally prepared for a particular opponent and then executing the way that you want to execute. And like I say, the Jazz just didn't seem to be able to do that, especially on the offensive end where they just made a lot of bizarre, boneheaded decisions that you, d- that you don't usually see from the Jazz. You know, the Jazz 
since December have been one of the NBA's top offenses. So you just don't see them go into such a dr- an extended drought like that very often. The Utah Jazz have been uh, from deep have not been great. Twenty four point six percentage on thirty two and a half attempts per game. Is there a solution to this, or without Bojan, do they need to find a different way to score? No, I think you, you're referring specifically to the three point line, right? Cor- correct. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. No, I, I mean, I think that's. I think that's that's who they want to be. That's who they need to be, um, because if you don't force teams to respect that, then the middle gets clogged up. And that means Rudy Gobert can't roll into the lane, and that means Donovan Mitchell can't drive, and, and that just impacts everything. So they, they need to still be able to get shots up, and Quinn Snyder's been talking about that over the course of the last week, just, just being willing to pull the trigger on, on good shots, right? Like some of it is, is you just need to be able to pass up an okay shot if there's a better shot coming later in the offense, later in the, in the execution of the play. But that's going to still be really important to them, and they have several guys who can hit that, um, you know, Joe Ingles is a really good shooter. Mike Conley can be. He's been off and on during his lone jazz season. Um, Royce O'Neal is better than people realize. Donovan Mitchell can get hot. Um, Jordan Clarkson off the bench. George Nying suddenly can't hit a shot to save his life in Orlando. But before these last two games, he's been a really good shoot. I mean, that's his, like, really, that's his one NBA skill. Or, or, or at least his his top NBA skill is the ability to space the floor with three point shooting, and suddenly that's not there for him. So you know I do think it'll come back for him and some other guys. Um, I think some of it again is patience, and some of it is that without Boyan and just the spacing threat that Boyan Bogdanovich adds, they they might just be threes that are a little bit more pressured than the Jazz are used to. Right? I mean, the Jazz had great spacing when they had multiple, you know. The Jazz started the season, if you think about it, Conley, Bo- uh, Conley Bogey, and Don, and, and Donovan Mitchell, they started the season with three guys who have, who have averaged 20 or more in a season before. So when you have that many scoring threats, everybody's going to be a little bit more comfortable. And I think some of it to your, to your question is that the Jazz are just adjusting to that. Uh, again, we're talking to Dan Clayton with Salt City Hoops. One of the things that we were looking at when the NBA restart was going to be happening here is – what type of team would do better with a shortened type of uh, a lead-up to when things happen? There's no home court. It doesn't matter. Right. Uh, a, a team that's more system-oriented or a team that's more playground-style, kind of like Houston. Yeah. Uh, Houston yeah. seems to be thriving right now, and the Jazz, not so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, small sample size too, right? Houston's 2-0. and um, they, they Their win against Milwaukee looks pretty impressive, except that – you know, Milwaukee's doing some different things minutes-wise because they more or less have their top seed locked up for the Eastern Conference playoffs. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, when, when it doesn't feel, when nothing feels normal and you can't get into the rhythm the way that you normally do because there's not a crowd and there's not a, you know, you're not, you're not at home with your family and then driving to the arena and doing the same routine that you do. Sometimes if you can't get into that rhythm and, and get things done that way, it helps if you've got guys who are just bucket getters, right? Guys who could just step onto the court at the YMCA or the local LDS meeting house and just be hot from the second they step on the court. And, you know, Harden's one of those guys, and, and, and that's certainly part of why Houston is doing well. Um, Harden had one amazing game, and then he had one game where he kind of struggled, but they won anyway. 
Um, you know, like I say, though, the Jazz have a couple of guys like that. Um, even with Boyan out, they've got Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley, who are who have both been the number one guy in the past. Um, so, you know, I think ultimately the Jazz will be will be okay. Um, I don't know if they have enough firepower to really be contenders in this summer playoff, but I do think that they, I, I do think they're a lot better than they showed on Saturday. Let me put it that way. And I think that how far they go is really going to become a question of how much Donovan Mitchell and Mike Conley can do offensively. And then obviously how dominant Rudy Gobert can be on defense. Jazz Lakers tonight at 7 o'clock. That's on ESPN. Dan, the Lakers defense has been better in the bubble than it was during their season, I guess in average regard. Give me one number for the Utah Jazz that gives you hope that maybe the Jazz could get over the Lakers. A number, huh? Um, I mean, it's it, honestly, it's going to have to be the three-point line. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's going to have to be. So the Lakers, the Lakers and the Jazz have actually, from a roster perspective, they have the exact opposite problem right now. So the Lakers were already short on guard play on like ball handling guards all season long. And then Rajon Rondo is hurt and he's, he's going to miss six to eight weeks. So, you know, most or all of the bubble environment. And then Avery Bradley opted to not participate in the bubble for, you know, health reasons, family reasons, all of that. So that leaves them really without a true point guard. LeBron James basically is their point guard, but that means LeBron James has to be, the initiator of the offense. He has to get the gears turning on a lot of plays. He has to be the end point of the offense too. So it's, it's just a, a big role, a, a lot for LeBron to do in, you know, his mid thirties. So that's kind of their issue is that they have, they, they just are really low on guards and particularly ball moving guards. The Jazz's problem is that they've got a lot of ball handlers, but especially with Boyan out, they just don't have a lot of rotation capable big men. Right, so most of their bubble minutes have been Rudy Gobert with four guards, or you know, if you if you call Royce O'Neal a big, then Rudy Royce and three guards. But that's going to be a problem when you're facing a team who can put, you know, Dwight Howard at center, Anthony Davis at power forward, a couple of high quality wings, and then LeBron as the de facto point guard. Like, how do you deal with that size? When you've got, you know, Jordan Clarkson at six foot nothing to throw at them or Mike Conley at six one or, you know, it, it's just so size is going to be an issue for the Jazz. And I really do think that the only way that they that they come away with a win tonight is if they get hot from the outside. So so that's my offensive version of of answering your question. I think they need to shoot like 40 percent or better from three. And then on the defensive end, Rudy Gobert has to do a decent job of keeping L.A.'s bigs off the rim. Cool. We'll be cheering for him. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. It's a, it's a tall task, man. It it's a tall task. If there's any, you know, if there's any silver lining, it's that, like I just said about Milwaukee and their game against Houston, LA pretty much has the number one seed sewn up. Um, technically, they haven't clinched it yet, but they'll clinch it the next time they win or the Clippers lose. So, you know, sometimes the team that needs it more badly is the team that wins in these in these down the stretch games. So maybe the Lakers will put their feet up at some point and, and um, you know, the jazz will be hungry because they're in a real dog fight for the three through six seeds in the West, which, you know, those four teams, it, it's currently Denver, Houston, OKC and Utah. Those four teams are just really going to be fighting it out until the very, very end of these seeding games.
Okay, I wanted to talk about seeding with you. Without home court meaning anything, uh, it doesn't really matter uh, so much about where you're seated. Is it better for the Jazz <laughs> to maybe say, we're going to play for matchups and we're okay with being a sixth seed, or do they want to still try to compete for that four, hold on to the four, or maybe even knock off Denver for the three? You know, it's a fascinating question um, this year in particular because – like if you're if you're the four seed, you're like okay, congratulations. Technically, we're an overseed. Technically, we're a home court team, but we're not really right. Like because if if you're that team, you still have to you still have to play in a gym in Orlando. It's not like you're flying back to your own gym to play that game. And then your reward for being the four seed as opposed to being the sixth seed is that you get the Lakers in the second round, right? So I do think that there's an argument to be made for this year the six being a better playoff spot than the four right because either way you're going to play one of those four teams your four, your first round opponent opponent if you're three through six is going to be one of houston denver utah okc four teams that i believe are pretty roughly in macro quality they're pretty roughly equal i mean obviously certain matchups are more favorable to certain teams but you know at a high level those are four teams that are pretty much pretty much have the same record and pretty much have been the same tier all season long, and um, and then you know if you're six, then you get to avoid the Lakers in the second round, and instead you'll be playing the Clippers, who are also a really good team, but just haven't had the same juggernaut status all year as the Lakers. Well, and how much of it is just avoid Houston? <laughs> yeah, I mean for the Jazz, certainly I think there's that playoff demon of of Houston involved, um, you know. I don't know. I, personally, I think if I'm the Jazz, I wouldn't be as scared of Houston as I would be of the Lakers or Clippers. I, I view Houston as a team that is roughly in the Jazz's same stratosphere. Um, they're a tough matchup for any reason, but any of those four, any of those other three teams are a tough matchup for the Jazz, just because you know you're talking about you're talking about teams that are roughly as good as you, and they can get hot at the right moment and. Denver has Denver does some things that that cause the Jazz to struggle, which is why the Jazz are zero and two against Denver this year. They're one and two against Oklahoma City this year because Oklahoma's smart and well coached and has a brilliant point guard at the center of their offense. And they're one and two against the Houston Rockets. The lone win being a Boyan Bogdanovich prayer at the buzzer. So I, I mean, it's just it's going to be tough no matter who you get. So I think the counter argument is you might as well go into the playoffs playing your best basketball and feeling like you have some momentum and that you've treated the basketball gods correctly and that they owe you some good karma. But I really don't know. I, I, you know, to your point, this is a year that I think you could certainly make the argument because you know, being the four seed doesn't put you in a, a much better position than being the six seed this particular season. Hey, uh, with this, uh, the way the awards work for the defensive player, the MVP and such, they've already been decided because yep. of the regular season. Do you think that was fair? Or should they have waited till after the restart was completed? Um, does it would it have changed your mind at all the way things are going? <laughs> I I don't like it at all. I don't like it at all because I think these eight games that every team is playing are pretty important games to to how their season's going to shake out. Um, I get why they did it. They did it because they wanted to be fair to the eight non-participating teams, to the guys from those teams, because you know to anybody on those teams who might have still been part of the sixth man of the year race or the defensive player of the year race, 
you know, to watch their, their competitors get to go out and keep building their resume for that particular award didn't feel fair to the NBA. I would argue that, hey, if you were not within six games of the playoffs on March 11th, you probably weren't a front runner for major awards anyway, right? So I kind of wish that they had, that they had let this play out. I mean, you know, for example, let's take coach of the year, right? Because I think most people for coach of the year were struggling with like Nick Nurse because Toronto has over, overperformed, Billy Donovan because OKC has really overperformed. Well, like, don't you think it would ma- like? Don't you think it would change your vote to know whether Billy Donovan's Thunder finished sixth in the West or third mm. in the West? Mm. Or like, you know, would it matter if Toronto was number two instead of number four? Or like, I, I, I do think those things matter to voters, and I think most voters I've heard from and 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 read their thoughts on this subject wish they had the extra data points because these eight games matter. They're it, this is practically a play-in tournament for most teams. Like, you know, maybe not for the Lakers and Bucks, who already had done a lot of the work by March 11th to be in the position that they're in and, and to be in the catbird seat. But especially for, you know, Jazz, Thunder, Raptors, Sixers, Celtics, I mean, a lot of teams are still battling it out in games that, are, that, that frankly matter more than whatever happened on a random Tuesday night in December. So I wish these games were part of the award voting, personally. Speaking of Rudy Gobert, if he doesn't win Defensive Player of the Year, this is where you're so damn good at your job, Dan. If he doesn't win Defensive Player of the Year but makes an All-NBA team first, second, or third, is he still available for a Supermax contract? And how can the Jazz, if he is, make that happen financially? Or can they? Yeah, so the short answer is yes, he's already eligible. Even if he doesn't win a single award this year, he's already locked in eligibility eligibility for the Supermax for this summer. Hmm. Now, if they wanted to do something next summer, then yeah, he has to earn some additional awards before he qualifies. But um, but as for right now, they could walk up to him with a Supermax offer this summer, regardless of anything that happens with award season. The question of, you know, should they and will they and can they, that's a bit more complicated. Um, they certainly can. The, the NBA's salary cap rules make it so that you can offer your player their, you know, if you own their full rights and the Jazz have full rights to Rudy Gobert's, um, you know, contract situation. If you own their rights, you can pay to keep your player for any amount up to their maximum salary, which in his case would be the supermax. So there's nothing that would stop the Jazz from doing it. It just might make the books tight in terms of, you know, compiling and, and, and building the rest of their roster. Um, and, you know, the, I don't think there's a consensus on this one, I, which, which is crazy to me, by the way, because I am one of those people who firmly believes that Rudy Gobert is a top 10, 12, 15 player in the NBA. Like, how can you be the best player in the NBA for two seasons straight at something that encompasses 50% of the game? And by the way, he's also pretty dang good and impactful on the offensive end of the court, too. But I think he's a top 15 player. All NBA voters agree with me, right? Because he's been all NBA for two seasons now. So, you know, if you're a top 15 player, I think that's exactly the type of player who you rush to give them as much money as you can, as early as you can, because it's kind of impact that you don't want to lose. And it's really hard to replace or replicate. But I've heard a really mixed set of signals coming from the punditry on this one. I think Mm. there are a lot of people who feel like locking up a defensive star is not quite the same as locking up an offensive star 
and that if the Jazz did that, they'd be really hamstrung and in a and in a rough situation. Although again, the rules allow them to extend Donovan Mitchell, retain Rudy Gobert, and, and keep building their roster. Just doing so might become really costly for a small market team. Dan, always great stuff. Uh, appreciate the insights. Uh, we'll see how the Jazz do against the Lakers tonight and continue to keep an eye on how they do in the bubble, and we'll try to catch up with you again as they continue to play down in Orlando. Great. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thanks, thanks Dan. Dan. Thanks, fellas. Dan Clayton with Salt City Hoops. So good. Always great insight about the Utah Jazz.